0: Thank you. Evening, and welcome to NoxMente. Tonight's guest is David Metcalf. David is a researcher, writer, and multimedia specialist focusing on the interstices of art, culture, and consciousness. In 2011, he established the Liminal Analytics Applied Research Collaborative to focus on building strategic transmedia approaches to anomalistic research. David, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah. Also, a fellow paramaniac, which totally reminded me of... That I is right, yeah. Forgot to do the... Where's Nish now?
2: I was just oh, waiting okay. to pop in.
0: I forgot to do the twi- tweets. I'm going to do that now. You talk amongst yourselves.
2: Yes, and I think David is as well. This has been a crazy day, everyone. Uh, I hope that we're not alone in the craziness <laughs> because the three of us. <laughs> have had some some fuckery going on. It feels very uranian to me, so
0: it's skull everyone. it's more skullduggery than fuckery.
2: Yeah, it's just like frustrating little things and uh, you know, things that get tied up and all that. But it's very nice to have you here, David. I've been looking forward to this and as I told you before the show, I've encountered you in the world, can't put where it is, alchemical circles. And, and then I find out we both have Chicago, we both have Georgia, uh, so this is one of those great uh, instances where I'm just writing the synchros to see how this web all plays out. So anyway, welcome yeah. to our show.
1: Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. It was such a great idea for, for a show to cover the, uh, the night mind yes. and how that all intersects with everything
2: yes and you know one of our goals is just to give people a, a a different a fresh look at some of the names they may be familiar with in whatever fields they're involved in but a, a more personal in-depth side of them that's not just talking about the work they're out doing you know so this is a little bit of a microscope in a way but it's intimate is as in, intimate as one wants to go, and uh, just a little different flavor. So Knox, yeah, I, I love Knox Mente. Stand behind it. So anyway, let's. You're kind uh, of part of it too, which I know, I know, but <laughs> it, it, I do. I, you know, the more, the deeper in we get to this, the more that aspect comes shining forth. That's why every show's so different, the people and the people are not all talking about the same things they're on tours talking about. So it's, it's refreshing. Right.
0: There's only so many Nick Redfern books you can talk about. <laughs>
1: yeah. That's well, you know, one yeah. of the best, uh, one of my best experiences with uh, writing about uh, parapsychology was at a bar uh, across the street from the Rhine center with Russell Targ. And he was showing me pictures of his cats. And I just thought that was amazing. Like you know, like everybody else is asking about remote viewing, and uh, I got to see pictures of his cat playing around his his house. You know? The
2: personal stuff—that's my favorite. This is when you really get to see, you know, you get to see somebody and what's going on, uh, the 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 person behind the mask, I guess. Yeah. So let's let's get right into it. What kind of things now, looking back, kind of stick out during your earliest, you know, in your earliest childhood, as far back as you can go, but through your memory, obviously, and uh, the stuff that just seems to always be there when you access early.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a good question. That so. Um... I think I got into all of this stuff because when, uh, I grew up right outside of Oak Park, right outside of Chicago, and, um, uh, the house that I grew up in was really weird. And, uh, both my brothers remember almost like poltergeisty kind of stuff happening. Um, and I remember I used to wake up and just have, uh, kind of like, I, it was like I was always, uh, lucid dreaming before i knew what that even was you know and i would wake up to these kind of like strange kind of numinous uh in the middle of the night experiences like as a as a young kid and it really intrigued me and um one of the i think one of the weirdest things that happened to me in that house was during one of those moments of waking up you know i was we moved out of there when i was seven so this is before i was seven years old um for some reason I felt that I wanted to go downstairs and I rarely ever did that. I rarely ever like left my room, but this, this time I walked downstairs and my dad had fallen asleep watching TV and I walk into the room and the TV's going and it's the exact scene in Poltergeist where the girl is walking towards the, the static on the TV, you know? And so like, as she's creeping down the stairs, I'm entering the room and like, it was this weird parallel moment with this movie you know and those kind of like just strange experiences when i was a kid really resonated and that kind of continued up through um the rest of my life so it's it's just been kind of like one long stream of strangeness and kind of exploring synchronicities lucid dreaming and that kind of stuff uh you know in different different areas of this but it's always been like a deep deep kind of seated part of my life
0: wasn't poltergeist uh, two filmed in Chicago?
1: Maybe. It might have
2: been. I'm not, not sure. It
0: might have been three. Then, I don't, one of them was in a high rise. I I'll look it up.
2: That scene is so iconic. What was the there the mood? what was your mood when you when that all hit you? You're coming into the room as she's going towards the static.
1: I actually walked up to the actually walked up to the TV and kind of like mirrored it. Um, But I was freaked out. I mean, it was not a, I wasn't, it wasn't, I wasn't confident in that moment. I was definitely uh, unnerved by that. Um, So yeah, it was, it was a a powerful kind of unnerving experience. And it was interesting too, because, you know, all that stuff happened when I was a kid. And then as I got older, I was kind of like, what, what was that? You know, like, what were these, these things that were going on? And, uh, I had all these opportunities kind of at every stage of my life to get into more of like a scholarly study of the topic.
3: Mm-hmm. And
1: I really, um, I almost used that as like a block for a long time. Um, really up until, uh, ooh, probably until like, like after college. You oh, know, wow. where I was still, you know, and it was still, it, um, and in college I studied uh cognitive philosophy and comparative religions, um, and had an opportunity to study with a, a lady whose expertise was Mesopotamian uh healing magic and Assyrian oh. witchcraft, yes. So, <laughs> you know, it was it was kind of a cool uh bridge to that, but it was always very like book oriented, um, even if there was like it, even if I gave credence to something else going on, like I always leaned on the book. But then uh, it just, I think in 2012 was when it really kicked in. I went to a parapsychological association conference. And prior to that, in like 2009, I started talking to uh, George Hanson, who wrote Trickster in the Paranormal. Um, and so it was through that that I started to go like, Ooh, maybe there's you know a little bit more here where I don't have to be as maybe quite as careful with uh, the skepticism stuff. So, uh, but yeah, when I went to the Parapsychological Association conference, I saw the like hard science behind the actual phenomena and uh, had a chance to sit down with the president um, at the time, uh, Carol De La Hiron, um, who was the president of the Monroe Institute. And the way she talked about out-of-body experiences and entity encounters and that, it was like somebody talking about, you know, going to coffee or something. It was totally normal, <laughs> and it was really odd. And I, and she was, you know, this completely uh, mature, stable-minded individual who was saying things that were just completely, you know, blowing my mind. And I think that was really the moment where I was like, "Wow, this is this is real." Plus, kind of the unnerving thing of being in a a hotel conference room with uh you know remote viewers and stuff like that where it was kind of like if this is real <laughs> you know you're kind of you feel kind of naked amongst the the seers you know so yes so yeah but it was always yeah it was always definitely a part of uh a part of my life
2: we're it, so back getting back i want to get i definitely want to dive into this later stuff especially uh, i want to make sure we cover 2012 year experience of that year and not necessarily as you know synced in with everything and did However, we die then yes well are are we dead <laughs> now period uh, <laughs> uh so what was your relationship with nature as a child?
1: Oh well, I was really fortunate my uh my parents and my brothers um my oldest brother he and his wife uh took their honeymoon in the boundary waters of Minnesota. And um that became kind of like after that that became like a, a family tradition where we would go up to Minnesota and like uh Virginia Minnesota. In the summer. What's that?
0: Like in the Virginia, Minnesota area. Uh
1: in the boundary waters like Canada like border in yeah. Minnesota.
0: Yeah,
4: I've been
1: up there. Yeah. Yeah, uh, in Kowishwee. It was uh Kweishui is the, the place that we would okay. go
3: to. It's beautiful. And, and so it was
1: there. Yeah, it's amazing. And so, you know, and my parents were very uh very open with just letting me do whatever I wanted to do. So, you know, I would just go wander in the woods and stuff. And that was super formative. Um then later when we moved from Chicago, we moved to Arizona and um again, you know, my parents just kind of let me do whatever. So when I wasn't in school, I would just go out to the desert. And just hang out in the desert and stuff so you know it was always uh, very connected to nature
2: how old uh, were you when you moved to arizona
1: seven, yeah
2: wow <laughs> my dog uh okay so that's great in these formative years you got you know totally different big landscapes to work with the symbols this is fantastic
1: oh yeah yeah And in arizona i had this this uh there was the area that we were just outside of Glendale and um, there was a lot of construction going on. And so in the, you know, the kind of like border area between the, where the houses, were, the housing uh, stuff was, and then the the desert were construction zones. And then also kind of like where they would just toss the, the construction refuse and stuff. So I remember there was this one, um, it's like a sewer pipe kind of thing, like a sewer connector. And it had been sitting out there for, you know, however many years and it had filled up with dirt and owls were using it to drop their pellets in. And so, uh, you know, being a kid, like it was like kind of like a cave. So like I went in there and found all these like bones and it was just this really like intense moment of, of connectivity with, you know, nature and death and life and, and, all this stuff. And I carried those bones with me for a long time. Like, you know, I got them as a kid and I think I had them up until late high school, maybe even college, um, mouse skulls and, and all that kind of stuff. Oh,
3: so, that's incredible. Yeah,
1: the, the desert definitely like played a, a, a formative role in, in that natural environment.
2: Did you always have any, or did you have any, uh, special association with owls at all? Uh,
1: not, you know, not necessarily that that's happened more recently. I've had some very odd experiences since living in rural Georgia, which I actually, uh, I wrote about in a piece, um, talking about, uh, Jeffrey Kripal and Whitley Strieber's book, Supernatural. I had some really extreme, extreme owl synchronicities around that. Um, but as a kid, I think it was, you know, it was finding those, the, the owl pellets and the bones and stuff like that, but never anything uh at least cognitively that I was that I was tying to that association.
2: Yeah. When okay, and so also when you were a kid, uh what kind of things caught your attention as far as cartoons, movies, that kind of stuff? Obviously there's just great synchronicity with culture guides
1: yeah I, I was I, uh
2: kind of sneaking down to see you know you I, I ha, were you sneaking down when i was
1: gone? <laughs> <laughs> no that, my parents were real open so like it, i wouldn't have had to to sneak to see it you know that was just it was a weird for some reason I decided to go downstairs that night
3: okay um
1: yeah no my parents were were very liberal in my upbringing, so there was never a time when uh you know I was really blocked from anything um I was really into uh you know the Jim Henson storyteller series um Dark Crystal yes. Labyrinth like all that I stuff like the love classic I
2: that stuff so much
1: Yeah, that classic 80s kind of like fantasy uh you know folklore kind of stuff. I was I, that was my my cup of tea there was was that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, and he was a wizard.
2: Yeah. Henson Absolutely. was a wizard. Storytelling yeah. wizard
1: yeah absolutely and that storyteller series is just it's it's really intense and uh just cool stuff i was i was totally into all that and you know um yeah so definitely like that end of kind of the the uh fantastic magical stuff um, I really liked Star Wars as a kid and that kind of thing, so it was always it was always on that end of the spectrum Did media you- media
2: did you uh were your parents so I already get that they were open? Were you brought up with religion at all?
1: Uh it was weird. So my oldest brother, um, uh, and his wife, uh her parents were Southern Baptists and so he kinda went into that, but he was uh they were both um biology like students in college. They got their masters, in like, uh, the, I remember going to the lab with them uh, when they were getting their masters, and they were doing like rat, like, 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 lab experiments with rats and stuff like that, which were kind of disturbing. But uh, so they would always like, like give me kind of you know, science books. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Rats with with cones on their heads and uh, electrodes inserted totally. in their brains and stuff. Yeah, it was it was intense. Um, so they were always very like, it was, it was science oriented, but as soon as he got married, they started kind of getting into the, the Southern Baptist thing. So since I don't, they got married when I was maybe like three or four or something like that. So, um, they gave me a picture Bible that I read up until the point where I realized like it was a kind of like comic version of the Bible. And I read that until I realized it didn't have revelations. And then I got a hold of a, an old, like, like a King James version that actually had revelations in it. Um, so I'd always had, like, the Bible uh, with me, but never any kind of, like, structure to it. Um, and my parents weren't especially religious. Um, my middle brother went uh, Pentecostally for a while, but he'd also, you know, when I was growing up, he was into, like uh, heavy metal and he was a DJ. So I remember, you know, sitting there with like blizzard of Oz and and stuff like that. So it was kind of, a yeah, it was a weird mix, um, of me, you know, like as a child, like unstructuredly reading the Bible and, uh, science experiments and that kind of thing. And then as I got older, um, and my oldest brother moved towards, uh, they went towards Mennonite uh, traditions because they wanted to make sure that their kids were um, not part of the kind of nightmare that they saw going on around them in the world. Um, That led to like just this really weird relationship with religion in my family where my oldest brother and his wife were hardcore, uh, not even like in the way that most people would think like evangelical hardcore, but like hardcore almost like i mean mennonite and amish come out of similar roots so it was it was that kind of very traditionalist uh stuff and then my middle brother uh actually a certain point was working for pat robertson um he did some stuff where he was doing exorcisms and that that was when i was in high school that he was doing that in early college um so there was this weird kind of relationship with religion and on my part you know i'm 14 years younger than my middle brother 18 years younger than my oldest brother so i was kind of watching from the sidelines but um reading you know across spectrum so i was reading you know buddhism and uh kabbalah and you know when i was i was introduced to crowley when i was eight through the that time life mysteries of the unknown series so uh, i had a different kind series. of it was awesome yeah it was a great it was a great introduction. Um, so yeah, so I had a, a weird relationship with religion, um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it's very hard to explain. You know, like I've I have total respect for religious traditions and that, and but ended up having kind of a religious studies background, uh, starting very young, as opposed to a you know a, a more indoctrinated background.
2: I I like I like it. It's uh... It's interesting and and very diverse. You know, when you start thinking like the charismatic aspect of the Pentecostal people and all that goes on within those services, uh, is I've sat in on a couple. They I wasn't very welcome, but it was (laughs) one down the street from a place I lived and I just couldn't help myself. I was so attracted, the women didn't cut their hair. And I was like, yeah. who are all these witches? You know, like, I moved to a town, and I'm like, who are these witchy women? And, uh, and they're all Pentecostal, <laughs> And I'm like, you know, I'm like the devil to them. So, right. but it, it was fascinating stuff, I find it, which is very different. I have Mennonite friends still that I just adore uh, that seem very open, actually, that I, that I know. Or they are very open. They just are not having... You know, they're not having a lot of this modern stuff, but they're very. I I actually find them to be non-judgmental. Maybe they're just exceptional. I don't know. Uh,
1: yeah, they. I mean, they try to walk the walk, you know, and that that's a that's kind of refreshing. I think it if you try to uh, my as my oldest brother found out, like if you try to actually integrate from the outside, it's not so open. Um, once you get into the group, like things are a little bit different, but they don't they don't try to proselytize yeah. and they don't uh they they have a they have a strict line drawn between them and other people and they yes. don't expect other people to do anything that that they do so you know it's different than an evangelical who expects everyone to do as they do
2: yeah they push you know, so. it i actually had a postal route in rural illinois and it was uh it was in in actually that was like amish area and so yeah and the amish were very nice they always bought their products but they were in you know, there was definitely a line but i brought the mail so
1: right yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah you, you don't argue don't argue with the mail the mail person
2: <laughs> and i always bought their products they have the best stuff the best foods so yeah, yeah that's, that's interesting what about did you have like childhood night scaries or fears when you were young any kind of uh, those things
1: no see that yeah that was the thing like i i having grown up in this house that was kind of strange or you know whatever was going on there um i was never afraid of the night really like i always loved the night like it was it was super i mean i once i got into high school and stuff i would take walks and like just go and like you know even as like a kid like i, I you know as as i was younger there was a restriction on that but like um yeah no i never really had like a a kind of fear of of that i was always happy to be out in the quiet where it wasn't you know weren't a lot of people and stuff especially you know as i got older like i started to really appreciate the fact that like nobody's out after a certain point and you can just it's really strange to wander through like this the after arizona we'd moved back to illinois when i was in junior high high school and like you know you can just go out in the night and like there's nobody there like nobody's in the suburbs at night like everything is is done you know so you get this very strange view of what you know what commercial uh you know world is when it's all closed down and it's silent and there's no cars, you know,
2: yeah, I always find that really magical too. It, it doesn't exist in some cities like New York City, but it's certainly Chicago gets quiet and uh, I mean even Chicago itself has like the quiet hours what yeah. what uh what kind of so in this early period, do you recall that you were a dreamer?
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, Yeah. it definitely like, I can, I can remember dreams from when I was like six and seven. Um, And then in high school, I I actually started actively working with like doing dream work and stuff like that. So
3: um,
1: yeah, it was uh, definitely formative. Um, And like I said, I, you know, I was almost as a kid was accidentally doing lucid dreaming. So I would have very intense, aware dreams and uh, it kind of exists in them almost as like a separate life, you know, like a, a separate realm.
2: So to give us examples of when you say, give us examples. So you're lucid dreaming uh, and please. it was like accidental.
1: Yeah, so I would, you know, I would sleep on my back and not and i didn't fall fully fall fully asleep you know um so and also before you know i would be reading before i went to sleep and so uh you know i would just get into these mindsets of doing like kind of like creative visualizations and um you know kind of playing with that like imaginal realm and being in that. And if you do that, I mean if you do creative visualization before you go to sleep, that's a that's a dream induction technique, like mm-hmm. which I which I didn't know then. Um mm-hmm. and so I would end up, you know, kind of like walking into my dreams and then, you know, being much more aware of what I was dreaming. I remember one like uh and you know, and that was an interesting thing too, because even when I would have like what would be considered a nightmare because I was more aware of it. It was more like, you know, uh, uh, it wasn't scary, you know what I mean? Like it made the, the visuals and you know, the experience may have been like weird and unnerving, but it wasn't, it didn't scare me. It was more like being in a movie or something like that. I remember one was uh, some family friends and that, and it was this weird kind of carnival-esque house um, that I was wandering through and they were all kind of greenish and, uh, almost as if they were dead, you know, mm. um, and experiencing that and experiencing them in that state, you know, um,
2: were they interacting with you at all?
1: Yeah, it was, it was, a. it was, uh, it was weird. I was talking to them, you know, I can't remember what I was saying or what the, what the main themes and stuff were, but it was definitely, you know, I was interacting with them. They were talking, we were talking and that. And it especially in that that particular house when I was real young. Uh, you know, I would wake up and then it would almost be as if that was still around. You know, like those kind of like experiences were still around. Um
2: I love that. Sorry yeah. if I sound bossy. I think sometimes I come off bossy.
1: <laughs> no, no, yeah, no, guide it. Yeah, guide it. Guide it. Draw draw the, the here.
2: <laughs> I get so intense. I've got my little notepad. Uh so <laughs> this is this is this is fascinating to me in that, and of course I know you've done all this incredible research and um you know I consider you authority at this you know you're an adept and from where I stand. Uh so with this early lucidity or this early uh, awareness of dreaming, of being awake within your dream and parsing out the fact that that world has a sense of its own, a space of its own. Did you feel, how did that affect your, your waking life? Was there a growing sense that there was more going on, that this was deeper than this whole experience of life is was, is deeper than maybe in your waking life, you're being led to believe?
1: Yeah, see that, I think that was interesting. That's a that's a good question. Um, so for me personally, I don't know that I, I did grow into it like later in a much deeper way where like the bottom dropped out, but in terms of, um, you know, like a growing, a growing realization of that, like, because it was happening when I was so young, um, and because the house was weird and my parents were very just like, you know, you're getting good grades, you're fine. Um, I didn't have that sense that it ever was anything different. You know, there was never a point in my life where it was, where that was, you know, like there was any kind of like divide at all. Um, when I active, when I started actively pursuing dream work and, uh, like dream induction consciously, where I was like, Oh, this is what this is. And I'm going to, you know, work to really get, you know, get in there. Um, then I was like, Oh crap. Like that's like the, you know, it was, it was, there was a deeper level to it where I was, uh, I remember that when in high school or late high school, early college, when I had my first true, I induced this lucid dream. Um, I was like, I was really fucked up for the next like couple of weeks because it was weird to, to have that experience. And then to look at my, I remember going to uh, a friend's house afterwards and like, we're all sitting there and I'm looking at them like, holy shit. Like these people don't have any fucking clue, you know, what, uh, what this is all about. <laughs> like what the, what the yes. wider world offers, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and so that was that was unnerving when I when I did that. But in terms of my like general kind of experience of the world, um, you know, because of those early things, I think it probably wasn't quite as like quite as unnerving as it could be. But it, when when I did have that experience, it was it was pretty unmooring. Um,
0: that doesn't sound about- that doesn't sound unlike a first time DMT trip or an ayahuasca thing. Journey yeah, or whatever. yeah yeah oh, yeah oh yeah but i mean that yeah if you initiative. when you
1: when you go in and you're like you know in, in that particular one um it was uh i had done mirror scrying and then done a kind of like modified austin osman spare death posture thing to get like into yes. the to get into the, the, the lucid state and i had gone from you know mirror scrying to like laying on my back like uncomfortably and like at the time I was sleeping on a wood floor uh with no mattress or anything like that like on purpose because I was reading a lot of Saint John of the Cross and stuff um
0: it's like your own little personal abramelum ritual
1: yeah 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 exactly and it was just kind of like me you know just interested in this stuff and and exploring it and uh and I, I entered this kind of like gray domain where I was completely lucid and like everybody was there. And then I was being guided to show me the uh, how, how much of it was inside me, you know. So this person walks up to me and I open up their chest and I'm, I'm completely lucid. So it was, you know, as if I'm in this, you know, as if it was happening in waking life. And I could see their heart, and it was this weird mix of, like, zombie robot kind of thing, you know. And then um, when I came out of it, (laughs) it was a smooth progression. So it was, like, a smooth progression in, and then it was a smooth progression out, and there was no break. And I was like, oh, wow, like, that was way different, you know. And then to go, you know, in early college to hang out with friends, it it was very intense. Because I'm looking at them like you know, like I just in in one instance where I was experiencing this similar level of lucidity, I opened up somebody's chest and they're you know like this zombie robot thing, and now uh, I'm here and that's not the same, but it is the same, you know, in yes. terms of my perception.
2: Have you enc- so just on that image alone? Have you encountered that kind of biorobotic imagery? Other times,
1: uh, that's an, yeah, possibly, yeah, not, not it, not quite as, uh, as, as viscerally as that was, you know. Um, I think, yeah, I have had, you know, a lot of experiences where, uh, definite kind of like uh, non-player character experiences with dream figures and that, um, but not quite as, as extreme as that, you know?
2: hmm and, and also, sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. I was thinking that we should give people that may not understand what you mean by dream induction, a little entry into that.
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, there's, I mean, there's different ways to do, uh, to get into the lucid state when you're dreaming or induce out-of-body experiences. Um, and so dream induction is just the, the technique that you use to, uh, to keep your awareness from when you're awake and then when you lay down and to be able to carry that awareness into your dream state. So you're you're actually awake in your dream. Um, the dream inductions that I use, um, now are usually tied to, uh, there's a good book called Introduction to Magic, um, which is the, by the Ur group, which was, uh, a group of European, uh, hermetic and, uh, yogic practitioners during World War II. Um, and, uh, it's published by Inner Traditions, um, and the book, it's got a, you know, kind of simple title, but it's actually their working papers that they were sharing amongst each other. The UR um,
3: group, right?
1: Yeah, 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 um, which had Julius Avola in it and uh, Gustav Marink who wrote The Golem. Yeah. Um, and uh, it had some other folks that aren't quite as well-known, but were uh, heavy hitters in the the World War Two era occult uh, circles in Europe, and um, it's not evola's like politically leaning stuff. It's just his like practical instructions on on yoga and that. And he's got a good um, dream induction technique that just involves keeping your visualization. It's actually a um, a tantric uh, technique of of uh, visualizing a kind of like he recommends a glowing triangle um but you can in uh in some uh tibetan tantric practices you you uh visualize a glowing white light you know like a like a moon and you just keep your focus on that and if you keep your focus on that and let your body kind of go through its motions the body falls asleep but your mind stays aware and then um, you'll hit kind of like a dark period, and then you'll be in a dream.
2: Yeah, it's a great technique, and uh, I just I I, I move through stuff sometimes. And I forget some people aren't aware of what we're talking about, so I I just want to make sure. And since you're so deep with this stuff, some of it might be over. Uh, a lot of people's heads i just want to make sure they get a little bit of that background stuff the earth group stuff is great so what does the lands the dream landscape look like for you now and has it changed in your lifetime i mean you come into it work having done pretty heavy work as a teenager in high school so and then having been pretty prolific as a child so Uh, you know, this ought to be, this ought
1: to be juicy. It's different. You know, it, it really, um, there's definitely like kind of recurring themes of, uh, of buildings that are more hotel. Like I had a really interesting one where, um, I was in this kind of like Baroque library that was very specific. And, um, Later, I saw a picture um, that a friend of mine, uh, Guido Mina di Sospiro, who uh, he wrote a book with um, Jocelyn Godwin called The Forbidden Book, um, which is a novelization of uh, the European hermetic magic. Um, and uh, Guido had posted a photo of this, I don't know, it's, I think it's Venetian, like a Venetian uh, library. And it was the exact same kind of library. Um, you know, so it, it, in my in my dream life, like it goes from very Baroque kind of like European stuff to uh, swampy kind of, you know, uh, southern U.S. places. And then um, it's interesting because I've never really, I don't really dream of deserts, despite having, you know, lived in Arizona in that. Um, it's usually more of like a southern U.S. vibe or a suburban vibe or a kind of city ish vibe or Baroque, you know. Um, and it, it changes depending on what kind of the tenor of the, the dream,
2: yes. And so Do I hear you when you say, so the architecture can be familiar, but it is also shifting, so does that happen?
1: Yeah, Oh, yeah, yeah. Familiar. It's interesting because, you know, if you stay aware, even if you remember your dreams, if you're not even lucid, but you remember the dreams, um, there'll be similar resonance, you know, kind of a similar feeling to the dreamscape even though it may look slightly different or it may look completely different but they'll have kind of a a similar flavor you know that
0: makes sense
2: absolutely to me to me it definitely does
0: I, I, i do too and i think that could be mistaken often for going back into the same dream
1: right right
2: And you know, for me, it's it's not though. It's the everything changes. But I mean, it's like I say a lot in the show. I have like this house I seem to inhabit, and it's always shifting. And so it's it's always a different dream. It's but it's always my house. It's always familiar and strange at the same time. And so. And there's just general places, groves and plazas and stuff that's always like, "Oh i I know this, this place, this terrain," yet it's also different so yeah, yeah, it, how that happens when what does so give us an idea of the sliding scale of lucidity for you from just say dreamer like basic dream stuff uh daily filing stuff up to OBE you know to to astral projection however whatever the language is you want to tie to it from
1: you, you know I've actually never I've never been able to do an out of body I don't I at least to my awareness I've never been well I think maybe once but it was real brief and weird and not not very uh not very stable um but, Could you describe uh,
2: that experience to start with?
1: That that was actually that I didn't even fall asleep. Like that was definitely in a hypnagogic state, and uh, it was um, it was in high school, and I wasn't even really trying to like out of body, but um, I would stay up like way too late, <laughs> like drawing and painting <laughs> and reading and stuff. And then I would go to school like way too early and then I would get home and uh, be kind of out of it. And so, uh, yeah, I I went to take a nap one time and like it was it was a weird experience of uh, being able to see and move while not being asleep and also not being, you know, not being looking, you know, my eyes were closed so uh that was a a weird kind of experience that with that um in terms of like the the switch i mean it, it goes from being like completely lucid as if i'm in a place you know just like waking life to um being slightly aware um you know and then being able to remember the dream later uh and then i also uh you know, in meditation and that when I'm doing more active meditations, um, working with it very consciously where I'm not asleep and it's it's in more of a hypnagogic state, but not the out-of-body kind of experience. So being able to kind of enter a mind space uh, while not sleeping, you know, so almost like a dream, but not quite.
2: In and- so, when you are in that high state of lucidity that the high state you get into consciously at least uh, how so when that first started to happen, and you gave us this uh teaser earlier was there ever a period or has there ever been an example where you were you you know you're you're aware that you're dreaming you know the the whole lucid thing uh that you could lose control, that there was a sense of even though you're gaining control, really, but that there's a sense that, like for me, when I get o b e early on, at least it was i'm you know I thought I was dead, you know, I thought I had died, and so yeah it would oh yeah, snap back for me, it was always a snap jerk back into my my shell, and uh. And then not want to do that for a while <laughs> because, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, yeah. I, don't, I don't really want to. I've never been a person that really wanted to die. So before I realized we don't. And so those high, higher states of lucidity where you're aware that you're dreaming, how do those look like to you? How do they feel? How does it feel? Because really, I question now when I look at my own in in high lucidity it almost feels the same as an obe to me there's i don't know what the i at this point i honestly don't know what the difference is unless i focus in and look around and see my body you know like if i I get that experience to say oh i'm not in there
1: right yeah i um Mine feel like in the lucid dreams, it feels much more contained, you know, almost like a, like there's an edge to the, to the reality, you know, where you, if you kept walking, you would hit kind of like a wall of it, of it being something else where it starts to get a little hazy and like, not. um, and that was what made me differentiate the kind of what I would assume was an out-of-body experience, experience. Because it didn't have that edge, it felt like I could go you know explore wherever and uh the time in in terms I did have one uh lucid dream where I went into uh kind of like just complete emptiness space um where I saw myself as like a child, and that completely freaked me out um and that had kind of like a terrifying like death sort of like feeling to it um and uh yeah, that one was I think that was probably one of the more like unpleasant dream experiences that I've had. Um and that was later, you know. Um but yeah, so it uh and that one I think also had what you're kind of describing as that feeling of like losing like a control, like a almost like a loss of sense of self, you know. Um, because it was just kind of like an infinite like space of, of blackness and that with a with a figure. In
2: yeah, that it's the loss of self. Like when you come back, and your cognitive mind is, you know, if you're dissecting these, your cognitive mind eventually comes to, oh, this is the attachment I have to this life here and this experience and all that. And you know, of course, I, if you're having an alright experience, you don't want to let go of it. So it, it was one of the things I always try try to do <laughs> is find a a reflective surface it, it it's yeah i i find like the lucid thing is i go in with intent to i try to program myself to want to do certain things and always find a mirror or something and it's just funny how that stuff just slips away once you get into the state
1: right and Are there
2: other prerogatives happening? Is this, how do you parse out, how do you navigate all that?
1: Yeah, that's, that's an interesting thing. Well, and that's, you know, um, it's interesting because when you're working with it, you know, like that, uh, the other prerogatives come in and I've I've kind of started, you know, over the years started leaning on the other prerogatives because it's like those things come in almost like messages, you know, and I've, it's been really fruitful to kind of interact with that and to hear what's being, you know, kind of passed on through that that expression. Um, at which point the the lack of like, what I thought I was going in for versus what I'm being shown, you know, that doesn't that doesn't uh, bother me as much, you know? That, yeah, does that make yeah, sense yeah. To your question? Does that- I
2: absolutely go with it now, but it, it's it's one of those things where the times I have which are often where I can find a reflective surface. I'm never me as I am here. Yeah, and so
1: yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah, <laughs> it's always surprising yeah. and 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 fascinating. I, you know, I really want to dig in more to that. But then, there, is, especially with the lucid dreaming, there's just a flow, and it, it's it's like being in a vehicle in a in a strange way where you're I'm aware and it's moving. So it's got its own situation happening as opposed to the OBs where I feel like I have, which I've, I'm have i not a master at, I just got to say this, I'm working so hard at and I've just had, you know, I've had a, a few good examples of, but uh, those I feel like I have control in in a different way.
1: Yeah, and that that was the weird thing when I talked to Carol, um, the the president. At the, she's passed away now, but um, she was when she was the president of the Monroe Institute. Um, she was talking about out of body experiences. She could do it while she was just like sitting there,
3: mm-hmm. and
1: so um, and she was actually one of uh, the folks that had been with Bob Monroe through from the very beginning of when he founded the Monroe Institute. She was actually one of the the people in his books that are, you know, going through uh the out-of-body experience training and that. And so, you know, she would talk about it like, oh, you know, I, I, I wanted to see what was in the room, so I obeyed it, you know, and like, and that kind of thing. <laughs> and I've, I've heard from other folks that, um, you know, worked with Monroe from the beginning, that's how they talk about out-of-body experience. It's like another tool in the toolkit, like they're just, you know, going about their day and if they need to go look and see what's happening over here, they're standing there and they'll, are you know, out of body over there and check it out but, and but then come are, back.
0: are they out of body or are they just remote viewing? See, I think...
1: I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that, you know, and the science, the sci- the none of the studies uh, have, you know, provided any conclusive. Now, the remote viewers, like Joe McMoneagle, makes a clear differentiation, Ingo Swan made a clear differentiation too between the out-of-body state and the remote viewing but i think that has a lot to do with the fact that remote viewing um although we kind of use it interchangeably with clairvoyance
3: mm-hmm. um
1: for the folks that were trained in the remote viewing program, mm-hmm. remote viewing is a specific protocol that right, accesses, versus, you know
0: so,
1: yeah. yeah yeah and then and there's arv there's different you know there's different right. um Different ones, but yeah, it's a specific protocol. So when they say remote viewing, they're talking about using the protocol to get the the psychic access to the psychic information, versus you know the way it kind of in pop we talk about it, like remote viewing, and it kind of means
0: clairvoyant. You know. Yeah, I am being very general about it, but it's just it's interesting to me that this. I don't think the conscious out of body um, environment is the same as the unconscious one, or the the sleep one. Put it that way.
1: yeah no yeah no yeah it's a different it's a different deal yeah it's definitely a different deal
0: i think it's a different thing altogether but that's just me
1: yeah It's. i mean between yeah definitely between lucid dreaming and and out of body thing i guess i was thinking more in terms of like a lot of times to do out of body people will do uh you know like they'll lay down or they'll sit in a chair or do whatever Mm -hmm. whereas these early monroe institute people and maybe i haven't uh, i've talked to a few folks from the Monroe institute but i haven't kept in touch with that necessarily over the years but um they the you know like carol and uh, uh i forget what the other guy's name is i'm um, campbell um they talk about mm-hmm. it in terms of like they'll be standing there talking to you and be able to like out of body while they're talking to you <laughs> so they'll like you know That's my. Amazing. uh A friend of mine, um, Elliot Edge, who uh, wrote for Reality Sandwich for a long time and he's got uh, some podcasts and stuff like that. Elliot actually kind of grew up uh, knowing Tom Campbell. And he said that, like, Tom would be on the phone with him and would be like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to out of body right now. (laughs) And he'd be talking to him on the phone and Tom would be describing what was going on. You know, in Elliot's house. So, you know, it was, it was a very like, he's, he's cognitive, he's speaking. And yet at the same time, he's able to access this other information, you know,
0: little picture. Again, and picture is, you know, is can...
1: that, Yeah. Yeah. And is that, you know, is, is that he's actually out of body or is that he's, you know, accessing some kind of, uh, um, Piper-spec- other type Piper. of psychic functioning. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's unclear. Yeah. And Tom's also got a very like, uh, numinous uh cosmology you know mm. so he would say that it's all in your mind anyway so you mm-hmm. know it doesn't it's it's no different than uh you know when you're when you are when you think you're awake and you're walking around like you're really you know it's it's all in your mind anyway so he's just able to control that better
2: mm-hmm. mm, interesting i remember when i first the first couple times i got out of body but this was all in more of the classical so my gateway was different it wasn't conscious and it was definitely through the dream experience where i was just what started conscious because i would be laying there not able to sleep and then sliding around right like up and down and right. twisting and turning and bigger and smaller uh but then that eventually when i get to sleep and out i remember because i could see people i could go where I wanted, I became very paranoid about everything, like masturbation, everything. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I was so paranoid. (laughs) Oh, man. And still to this Mm. day, I actually am a little bit.
1: You never know who's watching, right? Like <laughs> you could have a whole out so kind of body like group of people
0: hanging out. You know,
2: <laughs> I know. We can have a little group, a peanut gallery, just like kind of just, okay? Good <laughs> technique. They're, they're fans wrist. of Igor, <laughs> <laughs> right? Good technique with that wrist. Uh, so, all right, back to back to you and and dreaming. So, I'm interested in some of the really. The far out stuff. So your encounters with others in the dreamscape that you're not, that they're, they are not part of your unconscious. They're part of, they're driving, they're clearly driving their own vessels and they're not NPCs or all that. Have you encountered other beings or things that seem sentient in the dream realm?
1: Yeah, so I had this weird. Uh, I've had a couple weird experiences with William S. Burroughs in that sense, Ooh. where I've had uh, I had one dream where I was at. Uh, this is like in college, and I had a dream where I was at like a like a house party, and Burroughs was there with Geisa, and um, they were talking to me. And it was weird because they were different than the other, and this is after Burroughs had passed away, and, like, uh, they were different than the other dream people. And it was very specific and, like, very, like, interactive. And Burroughs tells me to go down these stairs. And as I'm going down, it's, like, um, a bunch of, like, Catholic iconography and, like, uh, like candles and, like, votive candles and that. And at the time you know, I was studying Catholic Saints and that, but this was very much like a like a Latin American kind of uh, you know, more like folk Catholicism aspect of it, which I was not at all uh studying. I was looking at like alchemical traditions and Western magic and uh you know Catholic mysticism and Protestant mysticism and stuff like that, like not uh Latin American stuff. And it was really weird. and at the in that same period of time I had a dream where uh like a kind of victorian era horse and cart came with a skeleton dressed in a bridal gown right and like were they were like rushing at me in the woods and when i like look you know i was trying to figure out like what the hell does this mean because was a super intense dream and the burrows dream was super intense too and i was like like what is this um you know it, yeah i was looking up different like dream associations with that and like whatever it could mean and then you know later i become like one of the like english language scholars for santa muerta and uh you know mexican like uh folk magic tradition so it was this weird kind of like looking back on it where i'm like that was super intense and strange you know because it it definitely later played played a part in terms of connecting. You know, two portions of my life, which are quite different, you know, Um, and in terms of my scholarship, too, because um, when I had that dream. Santa Muerta had gone public, but I hadn't read about her yet. I didn't read about her until 2005. So, um, you know, and I would have been 25 then. So that, uh, you know, that didn't didn't have anything to do with what I was doing at the time. And then I read about Santa Muerta in 2005 and didn't connect it to that dream. But then when I started working with Andrew Chestnut uh, on the long-term project to kind of study Santa Muerta's growth, then I was like, wow, like that dream is very resonant to what I'm doing. You know, so those kind of things. And I've had other ones, too, where I had one with like a, felt like I was off planet or something. Um, you know, uh, that was actually uh, this one was a desert dream but it wasn't like an Arizona desert. Like it was more like a, like a weird, almost like Martian landscape kind of thing. And I encountered a some kind of like long necked, like reptilian sort of thing that told me to trust the monsters. Um, and it was this weird, like almost like initiatory experience. And that's become more resonant now as I've been um, talking to Craig Williams and he's been, uh, doing in the process of him writing his book cult of Gogatha*, which has a lot to do with um kind of like a, a weird sort of gnostic ufology kind of vibe to it but he's had similar experiences as well with this kind of like off-planet initiatory kind of dream experiences in that um and then that too was like years apart like you know quite quite distant apart um but those those kind of experiences where I encounter the something that seems a little bit more aware and and you know like individuated, and then later in my life it's played a major part in like what I'm doing creatively, um, you know, or in research in terms of research. Yeah, the sort that, of tut- tutelary spirits. You know? Yeah.
0: Do you think um, that the uptick in occult interest is Awakening dormant forces?
1: It's an interesting question. You know, I've talked to a lot of folks. Um, there's definitely a sense that that's true, but um, it's really hard to say because, you know, like I said, like one of the things that really uh, focused my dream work was the Ur Group writings. And if you start to go back and you actually look at like what was being published during certain time periods, um, there's never been a time where this stuff really wasn't like heavily put around. You know, um, if you look at like, you know, even like the uh, the famous Sinclair Lewis book on uh, what, you know, now is, is remote viewing and that, um, you know, he was a major writer, uh, Mark Twain, right? Like Mark Twain was writing about telepathy um you know the when the, the uh, society for psychical research was founded um Henri Bergson, who was a major philosophical figure like pop philosopher like somebody actually just wrote a paper uh, an article about um he was so popular that he was being made fun of in the press because when he would give a talk um there was you know like as opposed to other people who would be talking about philosophy and that kind of stuff he would have a ton of women there and the press got on him for basically having like a cult of women around. Him. And so like these, the, the very popular figure, we don't really think about Henri Bergson now, but it's like a Bergson's sex cult. Sis, <laughs> yeah. That's what they were accusing him of basically. And like, you know, um, like but the thing was before, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. What's that?
0: Go ahead. I'm oh, sorry.
1: Well, oh yeah. I, I'm the, Bergson. Um, yeah, the obscure French philosopher guy. He uh, His sister was Moina Mathers, who was the, um, you know, McGregor Mathers' wife and then became the head of the Golden Dawn for a period of time. So this stuff was always really prevalent in the pop culture. Um, there's a great uh, website that I'm forgetting its name right now, but they've collected a lot of basically spiritualists and occult periodicals over time. And they have basically been able to show that although decade to decade, it doesn't get carried over um, for each decade. You just have a massive influx of occultism. You've got the news freaking out about, Oh my God, we have so much occultism in the world. And there's always this sense of feeling of like, you know, this is a really, this is opening gates that shouldn't be open. And it's just just every decade. Like you have this, you know, you can go back to like the the sixties with the, um, you know the 60s and early 70s where you've got like rosemary's baby and all those things and time magazine has you know the return of satanism right and then now we have the, the return exorcist. of satanism so it's yeah the exorcist yeah and and those movies and that and there was there was actually a period in time of like where hammer movie uh, you know the hammer film production and that were focused on like uh you know satanism was like a genre you know so um, and then we're having that again, we're having kind of like a rebirth of that. So it's an interesting question. I think um, it's, yeah, it's something to look at and kind of think about, but that's always kind of been the the, the tenor, you know, I, um, to that me, this stuff is coming out.
0: To me, it seems like it's more of a Egyptian deity type of energy, more than satanic. That's me.
1: In the in the current like time period, like the, yeah, the
0: overall like what's yeah, what's kind of stuff. Yeah.
2: Like the Setian stuff.
0: Yeah, and and toth and you know, all of it. Just ever there's little bits of everything, a lot of ISIS stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that's interesting too, because you get like uh Pooh um, who was um active in kind of like the the uh, like the 50s and that with Ozmi psychic Buberic? studies and then what's that
0: was me uh,
1: uh andrej buharic okay he okay. um he was uh he was doing psychic studies in like the 50s he actually was one of the people that uh went down to mexico to find like the peyote and Got and it. that kind of stuff he wrote a book about uh magic mushrooms in like the 50s or it was like the proto in, like, wade something.
0: davis yeah
1: yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And he, uh, and he did a lot of stuff on like, um, he did a, a channeling with a bunch of, and it's become big in like the, the pop, the nine channeling, which he did with like a bunch of socialites, um, that were, you know, like rich folks at the time channeling, uh, this entity called the nine, which was like the Ennead and it had a very Egyptian vibe to it. And then in the early days, like three, the SRI remote viewing project you had um Jean Houston uh who was uh her, her husband actually yeah and she uh she was channeling uh Egyptian deities too and they were there's uh they wrote a couple semi like parapsychological studies of their channeling work with Egyptian deities hmm. um I don't know I don't think it was Boss, but they were working with a female deity that i can't remember
0: it's interesting too because they're only egyptian deities because we learned of them from the egyptians
1: <laughs> yeah 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 if you look at the cross like the the cross pollination that happened in that in yeah. that time period it's pretty pretty amazing yeah that they you know there's definitely a some land there. of there's of a there their, there yeah and it's <laughs> Yeah, there's a, there's a there there, and then there's a name from the culture for that there. Yeah.
0: yeah, it's interesting stuff.
2: Well, that was what was so exciting in the late 18th in the late 19th century with like the whole exotic revival movement that overswept the victor late Victorian period, and it was just all the craze. Everything. I mean, you can still I collect these antiques where everything's Egyptian occult and uh, even Moorish occult stuff too where we have the desert all the desert stuff so yeah uh, and and which is
1: real big in chicago in the architecture in chicago outside of the university of chicago yeah
2: oh it's everywhere yeah And, and and then we can go back to the high french court of the late 18th century and you know these things have always been cyclical in popular culture where you see it this higher stuff is in 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 the the i guess the higher born sex of people because in the when you get to the lowlands or the more common people you start finding more of the folkish stuff that that yeah but these higher circles always had a literature always pulling up stuff from the past and there's a great paper trail that takes us back hundreds of years you know and so yeah but these were the you know so whereas a lot of the stuff was parlor tricks and I mean we look at the 18th century French court and they're you know they're shuffling cards around and and you know, the pop necromancy of the day that was going on and the the Greek revival stuff of the necromantium and scaring each other and writing horror stuff we see with some of the great authors from the romantic period, uh, that stuff's all juicy, but this was book-learned people. And it, it, so I think like when we move to today, in this new cycle of it where it's like the hot topic world of.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Right. And, and yeah. where someone like, like my friend Diabolus Rex was, I saw he put, made a Twitter and Instagram post <laughs> somewhere. And he was talking about how, um, oh, Jesus tabled me, you know, it was Inst- Instagram, which is of Instagram. He's like, when did, you know, it's of course, cranky about it when did witchcraft become sales for underwear you know because all these modern girls are just like basically witchcraft Mm -hmm. and lingerie therein
0: (laughs) lies the uh uptick of (laughs) occult interest that i was speaking about
3: yeah
2: yeah the modern the modern version has a particular flavor that's not as exciting as say you know i really love the 60s version but the 1920s was just Delicious, 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 delicious! With these art circles involved in it, and uh, it had more of a sex appeal. Today, it's just lewd, overexposed, and shallow, as opposed to these other revivals. And so, and again, this was this is like such a this is such a grand topic because it's like astrology, Hellenistic, Vedic versus you know traditional tropical and the deeper occultists are saying, well, the the real stuff is still the Vedic, the real predictive astrology or the older Hellenistic stuff. And the sleight of hand is the tropical. And so which is mostly the pop culture astrology. So there's that, you know, there's always this idea of the secret under the surface.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting, you know, the, the uptick idea, too. So, the you know, the Catholic Church has been saying that there's, like, a an increase in, in demonism. Yeah. And so they've been, you know, they they had their, like, we need more exorcists in the Catholic Church, and now they have their, we need more exorcists from every tradition. And I kept wondering, like, are there statistics on this? Like, are you guys keeping records? Like, how many demonization cases do you have? And every article I read, I could never find like a statistic like you know okay so we had x number of exorcisms in this year and it's always you know that's private and we don't publish that like okay so andrew chestnut who i've worked with on the the santa muerta stuff he was he started doing um because he's a catholic scholar he's been looking at the exorcism stuff and i asked him i was like so this uptick in demonism like well do we have statistics like do we have numbers and he was like uh you know kind of vague on it and no, you know, basically, and so finally, in the last slew of articles that came out, like last week or the week before, where um, the the most recent like gathering they had brought in like people from all Christian denominations to do the exorcism thing, at the very end of one of the articles that I read, the the priest who was being interviewed said, "Well, we don't have numbers." Like he admitted, like right out, like, "Well, we don't have numbers. Like we don't have like an actual." like count on this you know and so it was really interesting to me it's like we hear this stuff and it goes out in the media and that and you know the same thing like with ufos like there's right now this big thing about the military seeing more ufos and i was like are they like is that true like do we do we have statistics on this like is there any proof of this and finally there was a skeptical guy who asked one of the a journalist who wrote a Politico piece that was one of the first articles that came out on the Navy's new rules about reporting unidentified stuff. And the the skeptical guy, Mick West, was like, hey, um, is this, do you have a statement from the military that says there's an uptick, or is this your interpretation of what they said? And in the exchange, it came out, well, that's what I'm interpreting because they just changed the rules. So there was no, like, there's no numbers on the uptick. So, yeah, there's nothing, like, there's no numbers on the uptick of demonization. There's no numbers on the uptick of more UFOs. And so, because the actual, like, databases on UFO sightings, the civilian sightings are going down. So, like, it's it's kind of interesting to see this way that the media plays into this concept of, like, what's more and what's less. And it gets kind of, you I you know, I get blinded because, like, I'm in the middle of all of it. So it seems like there's weird crap all over the place, you know, until it's I come talk to people who aren't in there, you know.
0: It's got to make you wonder whether or not it's just part of the narrative. If it's, you know,
1: being, yeah, that, well, it out does there. make, yeah, that's exactly, yeah, that's exactly, that is what I wonder, you know, like what? what, what is the, what's the, what's the point behind the uptick, like, you know. Um, with something like one of the things with Santa Muerta that's been interesting is like we've actually been able to see an uptick. Like we can actually say, like, you know, in two thousand one this wasn't very public. And now in two thousand nineteen you've got Santa Muerta in the UK, you have it in Poland, you know, you've got it in Australia and all tarot over the place. Deck, people are yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, tarot deck number sales, like right, like the sales numbers on tarot decks are going up. Like oh, yeah, I think I there was a thirty percent rise.
2: Yeah
0: so i totally forgot about that tarot deck i bought that
2: the santa morte deck yeah, yeah. you got it from me too jerry mm. yeah but the santa morte oh, yeah. deck is definitely something that's very trackable i mean i think back 10 years ago and i yeah it, it's where was it so
1: yeah yeah so we so, can see an uptick in that you
0: know and the uh just throw throw a monkey wrench into this the uh I don't know what to call them. People who believe they're in commune with aliens who are going to save the planet. Those people. Yeah. Yeah. They claim that the uptick is due to ET being pissed off that the government won't disclose their <laughs> their uh, collusion with them. Right. So they're making themselves they're doing their own disclosure. That's what these people say.
1: Right. You know, maybe I don't, I don't know. Exactly. Maybe I don't, I, know. I don't, know. You don't know, know either. That's the, you know, we'll wait for it. Like hopefully that'd be interesting, you know.
2: Well, well I'd certainly like to see a veil lifted on all of that. Uh you know, we I have sh- ever shifting thoughts on on anything ET-ish and whether it's inner earth or whatever space is as opposed to anything we've considered other throughout history, so from fairies to demons to ETs, whatever that is, I'd like to see something. I'd love the bubble to pop. (laughs) I think we all would. Isn't the role of art and sci-fi to show us what we cannot see, and then we are able to see something that may have been there all along?
0: Yeah, like Matrix style. But who knows what these things are? their intentions and you know ramifications of mixing with them
1: and that's interesting too because a lot of the you know uh even in the uh there's a guy uh who is a, a yogic practitioner that's actually been working with mit on the question of consciousness he's done like talks in concert with uh some of the folks developing ai to kind of hash out like what is you know machine consciousness versus human consciousness and what is consciousness and all that and he's got a interesting talk on um on yogic practitioners and the kind of like golden age of that and how terrifying it actually is and how you know we we look at like these figures as if they're you know these these powerful savior figures but if you actually go and look at the writing. And you look at the historical accounts and, you know, the yeah. mythological accounts and that the heroes are actually kind of terrifying individuals who are no longer quite human and can be really destructive to the status quo and the, the comfortable way of living. And oftentimes when you have these kind of like empowered individuals come out, it means that the society is about to fall apart and like it's going to be kind of a terrifying period for most people, you know?
0: It's almost like so it the is an uh, interesting question. It's almost like the the psychological trauma and civil unrest drives these things into into form or more yeah. into more yeah. so, solid form. Yeah, but they're all demons anyways. Yeah, everything. Yeah. It's Everything's demons. demons <laughs> the world
2: of demons <laughs> since you mentioned consciousness i want to wrap back around to
0: <laughs> wait before i forget too i read I, I did see that article about the extra classes on
1: yeah right was it was on christian post 400 right? bucks
0: oh yes. I'm, yeah. I'm, yeah i actually may take it
1: yeah 400 bucks trip to the vatican and you get exorcism training why not
2: yeah, yeah that would that be
1: fantastic. fun
2: fantastic seriously
0: because i could totally use a side gig
2: I, well, and just just,
1: the, just the and with the uptick, right? There's more people hiring. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah.
0: Well, I just want to, my. I'm going to be a dick in class too, you know. But I, I want it. Does it only work against Christian demons?
1: You know, <laughs> or, 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 That's right? Yeah, yeah. That, well, I mean, it, yeah. You get. You're like, going to specialize.
0: So. <laughs> I don't want to specialize.
1: Exercise. Exercise the church. Get the demons out. Yeah.
0: yeah good luck
2: with that. Yeah. It, there'll yeah. be nothing left. <laughs> so what is the difference how do you see at this point David the difference between states of consciousness that that we can experience so memory is clearly a state of consciousness dreaming is clearly a state of consciousness this is a state of consciousness and then even the uh the idea of um active imagination or looking forward what's what's the difference between them and how does this nowness how is this nowness affected by that because everything always you know we're always now even though it's like a merry-go-round it shifts but we're always somehow now right yet last night i was having a great adventure down on the nile you know
1: Right, right.
2: Where's consciousness? Yeah, that's
1: an interesting. That's an interesting question. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's uh. There's different levels of of kind of reification of a material sense to that. You know, um. I don't know if there's a verbal answer to that. I think the best way to kind of explore that is to to play with those different states. You know, like, what is the experiential, the kind of phenomenological uh, resonance of a memory versus, you know, a, a dream versus a lucid dream um, versus, uh, you know, a moment of deja vu. Um, I've had some weird waking moments of, like, traveling into my own past, um, where it was just a strange almost like a tunnel in my mind opened up where I was like way aw- like seeing through my eyes as a kid while I was also seeing through my eyes now, you know. Um it's a strange thing. It always kind of ties into that sense of I and like the the sense of self awareness, you know. And then if you go into it deeper you get different senses of awareness beyond the self, but still a sense of awareness, you know? And then if you go deeper than that uh, a sense of uh, a lucidity beyond awareness—that is where awareness sits. You know, um, it's a—it's—it's a, it's something that you almost have to kind of experience more than can be explained. I think verbally. You know,
2: are we able to like Jung was big on that concept of changing consciousness at will, and. Uh and i paraphrase that i don't i can't remember if those were actually his words like francis wicks or esther harding one of the jungians and uh but how does one find themselves dead and aware or lucid and aware i mean what makes this so acute it, you know standing yeah. here right now this feels like the most real 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 but then when i'm out of body it feels actually more real than this so and the fact that it's this these changing tides and i can't i somehow cannot reconcile the consciousness aspect of all this and it's um without feeling kind of paranoid and crazy you know you know like (laughs) (laughs) yeah
1: (laughs) oh yeah yeah there's a this uh this uh a friend of mine eric bargo has a book called time loops which is a cool thing to look at
3: we had had him on yeah
1: three weeks ago yeah yeah so eric's stuff uh has really you know when i first looked at it (laughs) i was like meh i don't know i wasn't i wasn't like i wasn't totally jumping on it and then um as i started to think about it and talk to him more about it and um get into it it's it's an interesting thing to kind of float in that space of of what he's talking about and it's it's weird because it you know it starts to break down walls and it starts to uh to kind of give a different a different view of you know consciousness versus you know consciousness with a big c versus consciousness with a small c and then how that all fits into to uh our experience i mean because if you think about it like nothing that we experience is outside of our head because it's all you know we're all experiencing it from inside our mind you know right and then yet we have these experiences with you know each other where there's a clear continuation of you know i like separate identity or so it seems um but that you know then you can go into these states of lucidity where that plays out even more in your mind than in your mind. You know, um, it's strange. I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, again, I think it falls back to that like experiential explanations as opposed to so much like a verbal understanding. And it does when you start to kind of work with those things and kind of play with it and think about it, it really does kind of have that moment of like, oh shit! Like, did I just break something? You know, especially when like it kicks in like really, <laughs> really powerfully. Like, uh oh, did I just step a little too far into this this thought pattern? You know,
0: it's uh, I have a question that I wrote down from before about Eric Wargo. It's funny you brought him up. Synchronistic. Um, when you were talking about the dream where the skeletons were rushing you. Yeah, I immediately thought of Eric Wargo at that point, because it, it could be like some kind of retro causal loop, yeah, yeah, from your Santa Muerta work coming back.
1: Yeah. Well, and that was, so the, the time, the, the experience I had in waking where I was looking back at my childhood had to do with Strieber mm-hmm. and it had to do with, because we moved, you know, my parents moved to Arizona when I was seven. So that was, When Strieber's book came out, when Communion came out, and I was too young to be, you know, reading Communion, but he was on TV, he's on Larry King, Mm -hmm. and uh, his book is everywhere when you're moving because, you know, we were at the airport, right, and Communion there. And then we were at, like, my parents were always real big on taking me to bookstores and and getting the books, so every bookstore that we went to, there was Communion, and you go to the mall, and there's Communion. And so like Are you sure I you didn't know my parents?
0: <laughs>
1: were well we are from we're from uh Chicago, right? Yeah, so like at yeah, all true. it must be like a Chicago thing that parents force you to to read a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Um, sorry, sorry about that. No, no. So yeah, it, like I had this moment where like um it, this weird kind of synchronistic extreme when Supernatural was about to be published, and I had this moment where I suddenly like was there as a kid looking at the communion cover as I was here thinking about the supernatural book and it was just this really weird like, you know, what, like it, it seemed similar to what Eric describes as, you know, the, the four dimensional worm that we are right. Like as we stretched through time.
4: Yeah. The, um, the white but as,
1: as I was, aware at two points on that worm you know like at the same you know in the in the present sense and then the strange thing was like thinking about what a weird kid i was and what kind of mindset like where it was almost like a confabulatory moment in my mind where i was like when i was standing there looking at the book did i feel weird at that moment because i was realizing it now and having this moment you know so it was a an interesting kind of wargonian
0: yeah, like, uh, did your observation experience. of yourself at that point affect your energy field in any way, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't know. It's, I, I'm curious if you, if one is an observer, like an unentangled observer at that point, since it's your life.
1: Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. No, I don't either. Yeah it felt funky that's that's all
0: (laughs) did it it feel feel voyeuristic weird or just like (laughs) well this is weird
1: uh it it kind of felt more like i might fall over at this moment weird It was like it was really unmooring it was it it like almost dropped me to my knees like it was like a strange a strange experience that yeah it was it was odd Hmm.
2: cool do you have you been able to hone in or work with or have what's commonly known as like precognitive stuff through your dreams?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, not in any kind of like, unfortunately, not in any way where you can stop stuff from happening. But I've definitely like I I have experiences, or I'll have a dream, and I'll know the kind of tenor and the feeling. And then I'll know to like at least be aware that there's something coming down the line. Um I had that with uh my dad's death and uh with my mom's death. So in those, you know, classic like uh parapsychological trauma moments where you know I would have an experience and be like, Oh crap like something's coming down, you know. So
2: is it is it could would you share one of those experiences with us, or those details, if you don't if you don't mind?
1: Yeah, I mean, before my dad died, um, I had like just a like horrible, like almost like a nervous breakdown, and I didn't know what was going on. And uh, I actually went and stayed with my brother in Virginia for a portion of the summer to kind of like chill out, because I was just like it was this weird, horrible, just like dark. Kind of feeling um, like completely empty and like uh, weird, and then at the end of that period where I was staying with my brother, I woke up one morning like it had it it had been getting better, and then like it started getting bad again. And uh, I woke up one morning just in a panic, and at that moment the phone rang, and then I heard my brother answer the phone, and then I heard him uh, scream, "Oh no!" And it was the call that my dad had died. Um, and there was no indication that he was going to die. So it was like, it was a weird thing. And that was kind of my first like really powerful experience with that of like having almost like a premonition that haunted me up into the point where it happened. And then when my mom died, um, I was a little bit more vetted in that kind of experience. And uh, at the time, I was working a side gig overnights at Seven Eleven. And I just had this horrible night, like it was just like I couldn't focus, like I was just really uh, not with it at all, and like was sitting out on like out in front of the store a lot and just kind of hanging out, and when it finally came time for uh about when I was uh gonna be you know my shift was over, um this crow landed on a light pole and then a sparrow landed next to it and normally like crows and sparrows don't get along they'll fight and they were totally just chilling next to each other and i was like oh that's not good like that's weird and then i went home and i got a phone call from my brother which uh was that my mom had terminal cancer and i needed to get my ass down to georgia to uh to be with her she had moved down um both my brothers ended up moving to georgia for different reasons, and uh, she had moved down at a certain point to, to be with them, and so uh, that's how I ended up here. But yeah, so it was that was intense. And then with her, you know, uh, she had terminal cancer, so we knew she was going to die. But she was in hospice for a while, and then she was at the house for a while, um, her house, and I was staying at her house with her. Um, and it was just like a series of just very odd like dreams. And all of that, like, again, culminating in kind of like more and more intensity up into the point where she passed away. And in that what, sense, it was, you know, it was kind of a mix of like omens and dreams and, uh, you know, emotional feelings and, and stuff like that.
2: Did, in so with either of your parents, when you first encountered them, assuming you have, first of all, encountered them in the dreamscape, what was the encounter what were the encounters like uh with either of them at first? The the very first uh, encounters, the mood especially?
1: It was horrible. Yeah, it was like a feeling of like terror. Uh especially with my dad, like a feeling of just like uh real intense panic. Um with my mom it was that, but I, I, you know, when my dad died, like that was kind of like the, the, the traumatic one. And then with my mom, it was not quite, it was those, those feelings were kind of there, but it wasn't as for me personally, it wasn't as uh, traumatic, I guess, in terms of my like identity structure or something. Um, yeah, it was like a, a real intense feeling after, you know, after that, like after they passed and stuff, it's it's peaceful and like, not, not traumatic, but the, the death element of it itself prior to the death, it was definitely like a feeling of intensity.
2: How, how old were you when your papa passed? Uh, uh,
1: how old was I? 21, I think. No. Let's see. 22. I honestly don't know. I'm really terrible with like years. I am, and I am too. I, am I don't too. <laughs> even like, I don't even think in those terms. Like sometimes people would be like, how old are you? And I'm like, I honestly don't think that way. I don't.
2: My friends, remind like,
1: it's horrible. I have
2: no idea. <laughs> okay. Yeah.
1: I'm it. horrible with like.
2: So you were like around 20 ish, you know, you're just in your yeah. 20s. And, and how many years later was it that your mom passed? Like, were you? Was it uh, she? She
1: passed in two thousand eleven. Yeah, she passed okay. in two thousand eleven. So.
2: so that's more recent. And oh, I want to make sure we get to two thousand twelve stuff.
0: So yeah. oh, wait, wait, oh, wait. Were were you closer to your father?
1: Uh, to both of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like I guess I was more. I was closer to my mom in the sense that my dad, like, you know, he. My mom. They had a very like nineteen fifties relationship, and my mom never worked. So I was around my mom a lot more. Um,
2: I love that.
1: But you know, it wasn't like I didn't have uh, I didn't have a bad relationship with my dad. Like we were close, you know. So like it, uh, we used to go fly fishing and and stuff like that. So like there was you know,
3: it was that definitely a, wonderful.
1: Yeah, it was it was a good. I had a good uh, a good childhood. So, um. Yeah, it wasn't. It was you know he. Uh, he was a computer, uh, like a systems analyst, though. So he was always very much like doing work and stuff like that. So there was that, you know. So I guess, in terms of that, like closer to my mom. But
0: you know. yeah. Okay. I'm I'm just trying. I was trying to reconcile the different feelings.
1: Well, you know, by Plus, 2011, like I'd been like so yeah in two thousand eleven I was so steeped in like weird stuff, you know, like yeah. fully you know like yeah. at, at twenty one like it was more you know I was still in the books and and not quite as like I had done the lucid dream stuff, I'd been reading magic stuff forever, but like it wasn't really by that... two thousand eleven yeah, by two thousand eleven I'd like been so steeped in the actual like meditation and practices and that, and also by that point um I was uh, looking at, you know, I was actually like, uh, I was more, I've been Mm -hmm. much more involved in research and that kind of stuff, so I had a different view of death and life Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing, you know,
4: so
1: -hmm. it was like she um... physically passed away, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't. Disconnected from
0: her right, right right and, and i i I could see it now, I see what's going on it, the because you were so unfamiliar th- that death was a scary thing when you're twenty one and to get that energy at that point probably terrified you or maybe, yeah.
1: yeah, exactly yeah
0: I, exactly I, I yeah. totally see what you're saying yeah
2: there's a I have found the that the people that die suddenly are those deaths are a little bit more. They shock the system more, no matter how the cancer deaths are the slower deaths. Even if you find someone says, I just found out I have stage four cancer and like a week later they're dead, uh, you know, cause it can move that fast. You still have like a little time to chew on the idea and the concept and the, the ones that are just all of a sudden here and gone, those still shock the system. There's still like a, a bolt to those for me at least. And it has nothing to do with my concept of death or my feelings around death. It's just, wow, you know, poof, presto. <laughs> they're, yeah. they're here and they're gone. Yeah. So it's the quality of death, I think, sometimes too. But so with that, in in the dreamscape, encountering your parents afterwards do have you encountered them and do you still encounter them? And was there ever like a process of assimilation with uh, your conscious cognitive mind of, you know, are they just carrying on or are you, you know, are you surprised to see them? What goes on with your relationship with them now?
1: and that, that that's interesting and i think that again goes back to uh having always kind of been in this kind of numinous realm to one extent or the other like i don't really make a differentiation between dead people and living people yeah um it's weird you know so like there's no uh i guess there's a there's almost a purity after death where you don't have to deal with like the the human garbage you know like the the like the kind of annoying things or like the you know the whatever you just get kind of like the pure state um mm-hmm. you know so it there was never like a, a like i don't question that like it's very weird it's very strange to think about questioning it for me it's weirder for me to think about having to assimilate it than uh just experiencing it the way I do where it's kind of like a like oh well of course you know yeah. like
3: yep, hey
1: mom hey dad like you're here like what's yep. up like what, what do you what do you got for me you know um so it's yeah I, it's very strange it's it's been interesting with the research and stuff like that because it's very very personal and because I'm not tied to a university um and you know I try to stick to scholarly standards in that with when I do scholarship, but in terms of like my personal life, you know, I'm so steeped in this stuff that um, it doesn't, yeah, there's not really a, an integrative factor with any of it. You know, that yeah,
2: it does. For me, the relationships just continue on.
1: And yeah, so
2: yeah. it's just our perspective. And, and I've always had a deep sense of that.
0: It's, it's, uh,
2: but y- you know, you never know, everyone's different and these things are, Difficult for some people to process, and in my life, the most difficult death I've ever gone through was a poodle that, yeah, and she just died. Yeah, it was really the worst experience. My my mom, like all these social circles, it's I don't know. Poodle was the only one I wanted to. I really wanted to, and I made a. I circled this like several times. I wanted to get your so 2011 came up early on in our conversation and I wanted to get your take on the collective shifting that happened consciously or unconsciously or in the in the undertow of the collective with the 2012 stuff and the more I talk to people and the more we talk to people, these 2011, 2012, 2013, these, that period of time consistently comes up with major kind of self change or self awakening stuff, or even, you know, tragic stuff. There's just, there's something about that time slot right there. What do you think why do you think that is? I mean, I noticed a definite thread with the 2012 paradigm shift.
1: Yeah, that's a, that, it's interesting because that that's a good question because I don't often think about that because at the time I was writing for Reality Sandwich and Daniel Pinchback had published that 2012 book. And so to me, I was like, come on, dude, like, come on. You know, like it was this weird, like it's a weird thing for me because like I was, I was writing for Reality Sandwich, which was, Hinchbeck was pushing that hard, you know? And uh, I knew him. And so I was kind of like, eh, I don't know about this. Um, So that's interesting because yeah, there was, there does seem now in retrospect. And I had written an article in 2011, um, which was looking at the esoteric renaissance and some of the figures that i saw at the time being active in that and they've all gone on to actually be active in you know kind of the the popularization of the occult and uh you know kind of more esoteric thought you know in the contemporary now um so it's you know for me that's interesting because i i think that's something that i still still have stuck to like kind of a textual understanding of in seeing specific figures writing about it and kind of pushing it into the media. Um, you know, at the time uh, Mitch Horowitz had his Occult America book come out, you know, and then Mitch now has gone on to be a very big popularizer of these ideas. Um, uh, the Morbid Anatomy Library was, was kind of fomenting stuff and they've gone on to popularize a ton of stuff. And the figures that have worked with them including myself uh and that's where i actually andrew and i started our project um and then uh Kripal had just come out with um i think mutants and mystics was published in 2011 and uh then shortly after that was authors of the impossible if not vice versa uh authors of the impossible might have been written first I'm not, i don't quite know the chronology of that, but um, you know, and he's gone on to, uh, be a major figurehead and all that stuff. Um, and since I was writing for reality sandwich and doing all this, like I've been like right there at the front lines of this kind of like wave, you know? And, but since i have been looking at it since I was a kid, like it didn't seem weird to me, you know? Um, that's interesting. I would have to, I would have to go back now. I'm going to go back and think about that. Because, you know i've been so immersed in the media end of it that uh it didn't seem surprising you know it seems yeah. like kind of the inevitability of what was broiling up in the the you know the the mass the mass consciousness
2: right and that's the thing like uh you know it's it's always this way with shifts uh conscious shifts consciousness shifts reality shifts is that there are often times when things are changing change happens usually kind of slow and then before you know it there's been a lot of change that's happened and and then looking back you can you know it does appear like wow well that was only like three years or whatever but we're programmed to think in terms of the hollywood variety of change where it's you know these big events that it's one thing and then all of a sudden it's the next you know the the day the world stood still and all this the, the big boom boom stuff but
0: the programming
2: yeah absolutely yeah. but it, it's not that way in uh, i don't i don't experience it that i experience like a slow slow burn with change even though it can look fast looking back as i said And so we're constantly, Jerry and I, talking to people, people are constantly talking about these 2011, 2012, 2013, and not referring to the Mayan calendar at all that's in the far background about having significant events happen. And so it's just starting to be such a thread that, I mean, even you mentioned 2011, and so it's you know i at this point i just know that whatever shifted however it shifted everything shifted in in such yeah. a strange way the whole world is different now on this side of it
1: to yeah, definitely. Where there's definitely. like SMQ
2: saying, "Did we die in 2012?" and that those kinds of questions that are now coming up: Is reality rebounding? Is the reality falling apart? Why does everything seem to be looping when we have all this terminology since then too about? Sim theory, electric theory. I mean, all this stuff that's come afterwards is questioned the nature of reality. And all that stuff's always been there, as we talked about earlier. And all the esoteric stuff's always been there. But when we get past more common, it's in the common vernacular now. Like there's something where, I think most people realize something is different now. Something feels different. And and then there's all the woo that this is all wrapped up in. Chemtrails, is it Flat Earth, is it Round Earth? Flat Earth as a concept before 2011 really was, I mean, come on. you know. Now- yeah.
0: The CIA hadn't thought of it yet.
2: Well, it, you know, yeah, it, right. was, yeah. it was still it's like this sail <laughs> so you your boat and fall off, you know, it was still like that kind of imagery. So, yeah.
1: Well, yeah, that's and you know, a large part of that seems to be the you know, the connectivity of the internet kind of
4: slamming oh, all
1: together, yeah, you know, and, and also getting because, um, because my dad did work in computers since the 60s we always had a computer in the house and we had internet like right when there was public internet, like we had it. Um, and so, you know, in my own personal life, like I can see the change in terms of interacting with the world, uh, you know, as computer technology developed, as it became more immersive, the difference between like the, the, um, like BBS, uh, message board kind of forms of, like mass communication versus I ran a going into, yeah, you know, and that was a totally different scene. Like yeah. I remember, um, in two thousand nine, was when I signed on to Twitter, and I started talking to Mac tony's who uh, was a like a Fordian researcher, and um, I I went back uh, like uh, maybe this year or last year, I went back and I read his blog. And the way he was writing was so surprising to me because it was so personal and nobody would write that. now. Nobody would write these kind of, he was, you know, he was reflecting on like, you know, he was, he was really honestly communicating his day-to-day life and really honestly communicating like what he was experiencing from like, you know, like I wish I had a girlfriend and like, I'm going to go out tonight and like, maybe I'll meet somebody kind of stuff to his research and it was just this like really personal like open diary writing that you just don't see anymore like it's
0: that's how twitter used to be
1: yeah yeah and it used to be this really like open really interesting thing and now i I, and it was such a weird shock because like i've been using it for, for you know a decade so like I had, hadn't, you know, really gone back and looked and seen that. You know, I, I felt the difference, but I didn't really cognitively, like, recognize the difference. But then when I looked at Tony's old stuff, I was like, geez, like, this is, this is way different. You know, or um, my friend Joe Matheny uh, did this thing called Ang's Hat, which was like the first kind of like alternate reality gaming kind of like hoax meets like digital media kind of thing. And looking back at that and knowing Joe and having these conversations with Joe about how the Internet's changed and how the communications have changed and how people have changed and seeing him kind of lament what, you know, when in early on when he was doing it with PBS's and, you know, in like the early like days of the Internet versus what those kind of like memetic structures and that kind of stuff has turned into now. you know, it's really, it's an interesting shift. And I think that plays a huge part in this consciousness change because, you know, one of the things with the internet, um, which Diana Pasulka writes about in American Cosmic, is that the early days of the internet, it was considered extended cognition. It was a, it was a cybernetic enhancement on the the global mind. And so, you That's know, you the look DARPA at it like that.
0: Right. I mean, the DARPA research led towards that
1: yeah the the like the early like the early research in that yeah Mm -hmm. um and it was you know it was meant to be an extension of human consciousness and so like but what's happened with that is (laughs) like you get the id right like we we extended the consciousness but like the id's still there and it's still you know in some ways more powerful than it than it was before it's being amplified now you know um so it's a, I think that plays a huge part in this this change including the simulation theory you know up until Riz Virk's work uh he's the he's an MIT game developer that just published a book called simulation hypothesis and up until Riz's book I hadn't you know the simulation hypothesis to me I was like oh, come on are we really going to compare our brains to computers like we invented these things like that's that's stupid but Riz has gone and been able to tie it to you know uh, in Vedic, like the idea of Maya or in Buddhism, the idea of you know kind of an illusory reality versus awareness and that. and when you start to look at it like that, like it's different language, but it's kind of the same thing, and we have this model now with you know virtual reality and and digital uh, realities um and information science that really enhances. How you can look at that happening in the real world but there's this weird connection now because we're all like cyborgs we're all tapped into our smartphones and our digital personas and you know all of this stuff and it hasn't quite caught up with the the mass culture to really look at you know when i go online and i'm on facebook and twitter and all these things like these are these are me but they're also not me and they're weird versions of me's that are interacting you know um you know i see that because i do professionally for uh the business school at the university of georgia i do social media and so it's really interesting for me to see how the faculty deal with their digital stuff because they don't recognize the the difference you know they're like they don't recognize the control that they have over their digital personas or how their digital personas are perceived or how their digital personas reflect back on them in the real world and how their students see it. And they don't recognize how their students, being of a different generation, utilize digital media. And it's really interesting to be in a university setting doing it uh, you know, for marketing and communications and to see that divide between students who've grown up in this stuff and how they interact with it and expect it to be messaged to them versus how, you know, even the people in the marketing department consider it and they don't quite get the, you know, they don't quite get that like connection. And a lot of them will be like, well, I don't use that crap. You know, like I wouldn't use Twitter. It's stupid. You know? And it's like, (laughs) your students use it, you know? And then they're like, well, students, I've seen the, the studies that they don't use the Twitter, you know? And it's, it, they don't understand that there's there's different platforms and then these platforms bleed together and it's it gets real complicated. But I think that kind of the I think the digital media environment and the digital communications environment has allowed for what we're seeing now with this weirdness, which maybe like what you're talking about earlier, Jerry, with this, you know, this is occultism now, kind of like the popularization of it. Is it opening up these gateways? And it may be less about the popularization of occultism than the mix of the popularization of occultism plus these technologies of communication coming together in a really funky way with both the mass consciousness and then the individual consciousness and then the different group consciousnesses or, you know, minds.
0: Yeah, which just begs the question, where did they go? <laughs> Did science yeah. did science yeah. stamp it out? You know, did the Christ, did the Vatican do it? Did you know? I don't know. It's a real interesting thing to think about. And the, it really ties a probably lot. Probably all of the above. True, true, true. I was gonna say it ties a lot into um uh, the American God story. Or it doesn't tie oh, into I'm but it's thinking a that similar correlation. Which probably yeah, made that's with,
1: exact, yeah, and
0: that... probably what made me think of it. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. Go on.
1: No, no, that's a great. That the American Gods is great because I think Gaiman's really working with like that that concept and that like that that what what's happening with that, you know. And you can actually look at it too because the early, like the earliest forms of the internet that we see are. Um, and it goes back. There's um, I forget her name. There's a great book called Gods and Robots by I think it's Adrian Mayer. She's a Stanford professor, and she's gone back to like the Greeks and like the early like the the like ancient culture. How they presaged our concepts of of uh, cybernetics and cyborgs and robots and androids and all the rest of it in a really in a way that's not like clumsy. In a way that actually, when you go back and look at it, you kind of eerie with the the similarities to what they were, you know producing with their writings versus what we have now and even in our concept and then um but in terms of like actual like direct lineage um there's a catholic visionary Raymond Lull who literally envisioned a uh what's called the the Ars Magna or the the Grand Art uh it's also called the Lullian art but it was it was information theory before there was information theory And his idea in developing this system, um, and it's, they've got wheels and stuff like that. It's like, it it is actually an early computer um, that led into Leibniz, who was one of the first people to think of binary and that. And then it goes on into artificial intelligence and computing and all the stuff we have today. But Mm -hmm. Lull thought of it in terms of what he wanted to do as a Christian missionary was go forward and create something that would take all the languages of the greatest minds of each religion and allow them to take propositions that nobody could argue about. And it would or it would make it so that it was uh, translatable in a way that no one could argue because it was these logic wheels and these ways that the the propositions work together. And he actually viewed it as an apocalyptic machine in a Christian sense, though in a good way, that basically it would take the language of the angels and it, you know, and at the time, angels were, you know, physical forces, and it was a different way than we think of angels now. Um, and that it would take these things, and it would take the, this, these, this art, which was, you know, a, a mix of like memory training and uh, these wheels of uh, different propositions and uh,
0: logic structures. So ritual. Structures.
1: In a, yeah, in a sense, and like he would, and it would when you when you worked through this art, you would then be able to take anyone who you know was rationally thinking and give them this art, and they would realize the truth of reality. And at the end of that line was the apocalypse, where you know the great unveiling of reality would happen. And it's really eerie to see that because you look at his writings, and it's like, well, this guy literally sits at the basis of computing. You know, and what we have today in the internet, and you read his writing and he's talking about, you know, all the people coming together and, and talking and, and doing this. And so it's this kind of eerie resonances that you see over time, you know, always in the sense of that when this thing gets kicked in, it's going to destroy, you know, the empire, what came before it. Yeah. yeah it'll, it'll tear that apart and we're going to have this raw view of reality, you know, and then you look at it now and we've got the space program we're talking about going to the moon or we're talking about going to mars and all the rest of it with the idea being that once we get out into space we're no longer going to be human you know because a human can't go into space nobody can. so what yeah nobody can go into space so what happens then right like when we start to go towards that then we become something else
0: you what, know and that again we... has an
1: apocalyptic kind of well.
0: A tone to it. Yeah, I, I agree. What if it turns out that we can't go into space in any way, in any form, you know, what happens? Then?
1: Well, we can go with our, we our, can go with our mind, yeah. you know, I mean, we can, I we t- can go with, yeah. with something else. You know? I
0: totally agree. And I think that's something that the, the world has been steered away from.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: It's interesting. It's in Burroughs. Like Burroughs wrote extensively about it. Um, he wrote about it and uh that was actually where a large portion of the remote viewing stuff came from because Mm
4: -hmm.
1: they were uh in the in that early 70s period of the psychic studies it was directly tied to how do we communicate with submarines and how do we communicate with spaceships that was the that was part of the goal was you know we can't with a submarine you have a hard time getting uh communication ties to submarines and so what if we could just have psychics like a psychic in the submarine and a psychic on land and they would be able to do uh you know an encrypted communication psychically to each other and and pass that information so if this is possible let's test for it you know and so there's always been this kind of like tie between psychic studies and you know exploration into these areas where the human body is not really fit to go to um it's all very interesting uh, and very weird. So That's I don't know if we're opening one. up gateways. Yeah, yeah. So I guess that, that moving back again to the gateways, I don't know if we're opening it up in the way that, like, in the, the way that the exorcists want to think about it, but we may be opening it up in a way that...
0: Uh, Jack Parsons was thinking about it. <laughs> from...
1: <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. We may be opening up a, a little bit more Parsons-esque, uh, Burroughs-esque kind of vision of things. Mm. Very cool. So everybody, everybody, better learn their lucid dreaming so they can be uh, part of the the next new breed. You know, that's
2: I right. Keep saying this, I keep saying it.
1: Get your get your psychic muscles flexed.
2: You that's, know, it's time to awaken the the psychic facilities.
0: Wait, we'll let share. me let me talk some light language for a second. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> you get some going, guide us in there. there you go. <laughs> right.
0: yeah.
2: <laughs> oh, man!
0: I'm out of Wait, questions.
2: It's true. Do we have any from the audience?
0: No losers
2: <laughs> they've all been
0: especially they've all been
1: put to sleep. They've
0: all been transported. Oh They're... God, no, there's been very little chat. They've been enthralled. I would say
2: <laughs> yeah oh, as yeah. I have been yes this is this has been remarkable, Of course, I know it would be It's not a surprise. uh i and i have nothing i mean we went through we went through where i wanted to go uh
0: you go girl
2: with with this particular line of thought and otherwise i'm gonna i start start steering more towards the woo which is kind of where we are now yeah, we jumped
0: right into the. Loop. I, yeah, I don't think I, we ever left it.
2: We, we never <laughs> we actually never do really leave it. But as far as like like kind of like uh, some harder statements for me, like what do you think space is? Is there a difference between space and deep sea? You know, this kind of stuff.
1: Oh, yeah. I don't, you know, I don't know. Like, I don't think so. I mean, like, yes and no. I mean, I guess like in terms of like, again, like more of like a phenomenological experiential, but in terms of physics, no, not really. I mean, you know, there's, there's particles and waves and everything's particles and waves, you know? Um, And then,
2: you know, actually with you, I had a question that I didn't bring up and I, I saw it on my notepad but i i was specifically wanting to get your your view on the whole quantum thing and you brought it before go. but the whole idea of say what's popular now is the d-wave computer but quantum computing in general
1: yeah i haven't like so i i started to kind of look at that uh the d-wave thing is interesting i don't know if it's changed but the you know the The non, the non like Wall Street Journal article version of it, like they don't even know if there's quantum computing happening in the D wave. Um, At least, at least as of like a few years ago, they weren't performing much better than a high level, normal, like Intel processor. And that's totally like a complete, like, I'm not a computer guy in that sense. So like. People could be like bulking at that if they actually know computer science. But, like, from what I understand, like, it was unclear if the D wave was a true quantum computer. It seems like they've gotten a lot farther with that um, with some of the new, like, materials science. Yeah, they've upped the
0: the number of qubits to, I think, 1,024 now or something, or maybe even 2048. So it's uh, apparently so fast that it answers questions before they're asked.
1: So that, yeah, and and I saw some of that stuff, too, where I think that, like, article came out recently where they said that they were able to finally get to a point where that that was happening. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I mean, that honestly, like, makes me, it makes me want to move out further into the woods and just sit quietly (laughs) because I don't really, like, you know, I'm not sure what that means in terms of, you know, like, we're already kind of screwing up with just, like, the, the basics, you know? I'm so um, with you once David. we get to that, once we get to that level, like, I don't know that <laughs> the human species is ready for that.
0: I know. Um, See, and my...
1: F- I'm kind of like, dizzy with that that thought. I don't
0: know. And my concern with it is that if what they say is true, that these things are traveling entangled with other dimensions, in the hand, uh, then this, this system exists outside of what we call a timeline or a time stream or whatever. You know our linear time yeah. that we experience it doesn't experience it that way so it could be messing with with things in our past and and not even know it
1: yeah there's actually there's a i ran across a like a, a sci-fi short story called the the uh the Brooklyn project mm-hmm. and it's really like really short and i don't know who the author was it was in like some random like pulp anthology that i picked up cuz it had like a cool cover um and uh it was actually about that and it was about basically quantum computing and the whole gist of the story is the these um journalists are called in they're not allowed to leave until the experiment is over and then even after that they have to stay in the room for you know like 6 years after that or something uh in order to keep cuz it's this top secret program and um the the whole joke of the story it's kind of like a humorous story but it's the the main like head of the project is describing how stupid the skeptics are and how they think it's going to break the timeline and how it's going to change things and how ridiculous that is and as they run the experiment um the the you know it describes the the head of the project like making fun of it and how stupid the skeptics are And then, you know, and when the thing starts, they're all human. And by the end of the story, they're like protoplasmic globs, like whapping their their tentacles together and laughing, you know. And the joke basically being that, like, as they're making fun of it, not actually doing what the skeptics said it would do. It's doing that, but they don't realize it, you know. And so, um, yeah, it's and that was weird to read because that thing, this story was from either the 60s or the 70s and as i was reading that i was thinking about quantum computing and i'm just like uh oh. you know and the other thing too is they all talk about it real weird like when you like read like the um yeah i mean musk says a bunch of weird stuff and like all these guys say like really weird like kind of like really you're, you're you're heading like a a major corporation and like you're talking kind of weird you know cuz they were in the early days of quantum computing they were saying stuff like that like oh we're you know we're going to be able to access different timelines and different stuff and it's Mm -hmm. like that's theoretical in physics like and you guys are running a computer that you're talking about this is actually being a thing you know so i don't know it makes me like i said it makes me want to go to a
0: hermitage (laughs) so the brooklyn project was in a magazine called planet stories it was by william Tan t-e-n-n
1: yeah so, uh we, this is for check Suzanne. That, check that
0: out. I put a copy of it in the show notes. I've got the whole PDF. Um <clears throat> I uh want to say it's Suzanne that was written in 1947,
2: by
0: the way. We're doing oh, wow. a, we're, we've so got a little go. research project on 1947
2: <laughs> going on. More for 47. That's when the
0: fuckery began. <laughs> okay, I got questions if you got time. Yeah? All right does marijuana affect your dreams in general
1: uh burrows said it did it, Burroughs said it stops your dreaming mm-hmm. that you like you basically go into a, a state i think anything anything affects your dreams right like diet is hugely important if right. you're going to do dream work you really got to pay attention to not only your mental diet but also your physical diet Caffeine will affect your dreams. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, d- just yeah, Ad- Adderall will definitely <laughs> affect your dreams. Uh, you know, any any kind of any kind of stimulant is gonna uh, do stuff. But yeah, definitely anything. I mean, anything you. I mean, honestly, anything you encounter changes your right your field, the way that you're yeah your your experience. So that's why mm-hmm. in you know the traditional paths they always have a very strict. Um way of working with that, I think that you know, and it depends on, yeah we live in you know all of us live in the United States where things are pretty like loose and like floppy, you know, and like we're constantly like just consuming media and ideas and uh, weird pollution and chemicals and all the rest of it. I know that since moving out to the woods um and living in a two hundred year old barn, uh my sense of self and consciousness and dream states is much different than it was when I was living in the suburbs of Chicago or living in Chicago or living in Arizona you know Mm -hmm. so environment and set and setting are are hugely important and that includes diet and uh, any kind of substance you're going to take to alter your thing I mean it it can all be worked with you know Mm -hmm. Um, but you got to actually like make a conscious decision to work with it and not just like assume that it's great and do it You know, I think that's one of the things that like, I see a lot is people are like, this is fine, you know, and then they'll get (laughs) like real, like hard edged. Like, no, I do it. It's cool. Like, that's fine. And it's like, well, is it like, is that really the best? You know, so.
0: (laughs) I would say too, that uh, if you want to go get some good visions, uh, try fasting for a while.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, if you, you know, that, that changes it. uh, Definitely.
0: Cool. Um Chimpertainment wanted to know if you've ever embodied an animal in a lucid dream.
1: Yeah, uh wolves. 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 wolves, wolves. Yeah, I had one that was really odd where like uh a wolf was running at me and I was running at the wolf and then we kind of merged and then it was a kind of like wolf and werewolfy kind
0: of so behavior. how long have you been a werewolf no, I'm uh
1: probably since i was a kid it was the house <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the house uh the house inducted me into the werewolf call awesome
0: lycanthropy is so underrated
2: so that's how i know you <laughs>
0: <laughs> there yeah you go.
2: yeah see we've been we've been running the night we have been and i actually have wolves <laughs>
0: all right i got one more question from bb Oh, I'm from Joe. Uh, what are your thoughts about the current leading transhumanists? Do you think consciousness can be digitized? That's a better question.
1: Uh, no, I don't, I don't think so. I'm not a fan of transhumanism at all. I think that like, um, it's a stuff can be used. I'm not, I'm not anti-technology. Obviously I do social media and I'm on social media and I do digital art and I use computers and, and all of that. But, um, I don't think that the transhumanism as a movement, I think it, it's an ism, you know, yeah, it's a real I'm not a fan of isms. Um, and I, I also think that it's kind of, it's short sighted because of the lucid dream stuff and because of uh, the consciousness studies and studying, uh, you know, different traditions, religious and uh, psychic and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much more to explore than the idea that we need to you know upload our brains and i also think too i think that i actually i wrote an article a long time ago about kurzweil um i think there's a lot of pathology involved um kurzweil is obsessed with resurrecting his dad and i think Mm -hmm. that's weird you know like i think that that's anytime that you're like running on a pathology or you're running on it like i want to live forever you know burroughs has that great that uh I think it's in uh, Nova Express, the Hassan Asaba um, uh, speech, you know, about, like, shit and piss forever, you know, like, this really materialist view of who we are and what we are and the idea that, like, uh, we need to, you know, be immortal computer beings. Like, I just think that that's kind of of a weird way to look at your life. I think it's kind of pathetic.
0: Digital necromancy yeah and it's
1: you know you can just do real necromancy
0: exactly like just, you know do some do,
1: do some spiritist work get the you know get the spirits working like that's much much less you know maybe more of a tax on your your mindset but yeah you
0: know. and it's much less effort and it's more natural um yeah, yeah okay. exactly
1: go well, go the natural route go
0: natural you know
1: i mean i i think that it's it's kind of it's interesting like because i think that in terms of transhumanism uh one of the things that uh diana Pasolka points out in her work is we don't even recognize how how cybernetic we already are yeah With again the smart the smartphones and our computers and you know all the rest of it um i'm totally happy with gps i think it's cool you know but it also leads you into stupid places and you know i living out in rural when i first moved to rural georgia uh under this property um my car crapped out and i didn't have a car for a while and i was walking like 18 miles to go get like bread and stuff and uh that was a totally different way of experiencing the world like i've always walked in that but when you've got to go like walk to get food you know and like you look at the like the effort it takes to do that versus go out to the forest and collect some like chanarels and like,
4: uh,
1: Mm -hmm. like edible, whatever you can find in the woods. Um, it gives you a totally different perspective. And I think that with the transhumanist idea, like those people have never had that. And the other interesting thing too, I, I was talking, uh, to a lady I met who did, um, She's like a director for uh, preschool in Silicon Valley. And she was talking about how, you know, a lot of the kids that go to that school are from the tech company executives and that. And they don't let their kids use smartphones. And they yes. don't let their kids have a tablet. And they don't let their kids do any of that. And what she was actually doing at the time was exploring a redesign of their playground to make it more naturalistic so that the kids basically would just be allowed to go out into the woods. And so, like, you know, if you think of that, like, the very people that are working for the companies that are, you know, making this transhumanist thing even possible to think about don't want their kids to be doing it. Like, that to me is kind of like, you know, maybe the public needs to pay more attention to that than to be so amped up on this weird kind of sci-fi notion of... Uh, you know going to Mars. uploading our conscious, yeah, yeah. Cool. no, I'm all for Mars. I like buzz Aldrin, I think he's cool' okay. actually Mars Mars is fine. I'm cool with Mars, but not in a transhuman way. I think we should go as like ambient like psychic squids or something, mm-hmm. you know, like cool like Damn. out of body kind of thing
2: and we can
1: yeah exactly we can already do it we're probably already there you know like in our in our minds we've
2: we've got immortality we seem to realize we actually have it
1: (laughs) yeah yeah exactly just walk in your walk in your four-dimensional space worm the the wargonian worm you know (laughs)
0: that's right it's like the time there's a there's a tv show called legends of tomorrow and they uh, it's it's goofy, but it's long and involved. They are they have a time. They're in a time machine spaceship, that and their job is to keep the timeline intact. So if there's an aberration, or someone's messing with it, they go back in time and fix it. And okay.
3: Yeah.
0: They when they're not fixing the timeline, they're in. I forget what they call it, but it's like a tunnel, and depending on the vector at which you leave. That that dictates the time and place where you're going to end up.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. In that, yeah. Kind of the same. So just play with that. Play with the the time tunnel. Yes.
0: Build your own mental time tunnel.
2: All right.
0: Well, David, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you tonight. Thank you so much.
2: Yes, thank you. Yeah, thank you,
1: guys. Thank you. This is fun. I appreciate the, the good conversation.
0: Yeah, so, so do we. we. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <clears throat> and thank you, everyone, for listening and for tuning in. People who are live in chat, thank you so much. We appreciate it. And be sure to tune. Next week, we have uh, Mark Stofer from, I think he's in New Zealand. He's a, a filmmaker and other stuff. What
2: about how they can, what are you doing, Lugging? Oh, stuff?
0: yeah, shit, I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> Jerry. <laughs> how can people find you? <laughs> and what are you working on in all this? Uh
1: well, I've got a I've got a blog that I update semi-regularly, which is just David Um I'm on Twitter at David B. Metcalf. Um my San Amuerta stuff with Andrew is on skeletonsaint.com. And uh currently I'm just kind of drifting around and thinking about stuff. Um, I, oh, I'm also uh editor in chief for the winbridge Research Center's uh journal, um, which is a peer reviewed parapsychological journal dealing with death and the afterlife. Um, and that is called Threshold Journal of Interdisciplinary Consciousness Studies. Love um, that yeah, and that winbridge is awesome. I would recommend, I don't uh I have nothing to do with their amazing research, but like if folks are interested in kind of uh, really cutting edge looks at mediumship and uh, different uh, kind of more the kind of stuff that parapsychology has avoided for quite a long time, uh, Winbridge is on the cutting edge of that. So their stuff is fun. Uh, Julie Beischel and Mark Bacuzzi. Are behind that project, that, that research center, and uh, I highly recommend their work. Um, yeah, I uh, haven't, there's a piece coming out soon. I don't remember the title of the anthology, um, coming out from Oxford University Press that I did with Diana Pasolka on the visionary history of the internet. Um, I think it's called Believing in Bit, is the name of the anthology. Um, so if people want to check that out, that has more on Raymond Lull in it and uh, on the ways in which uh, kind of the, the visionary history of the internet. And I'm hoping to to do more work on that because of the transhuman question. Um, hoping to do a little bit more work on kind of the weird history of uh, the internet and uh, how we got here with all this communications technology. So that. Yeah. That is that. And I'll also uh, be speaking at the uh, the Georgia Bigfoot Conference, which is going to be interesting. Um, when not, is this? Uh, this is in October, uh, October 18th and 20th, eighteenth through 20th. At the museum? Um, up in, no, no, this is in uh, Rabin County, which uh, Rabin County is where Deliverance was filmed. Oh, and it is also the home of Ed Edwards, who is one of the current uh, psychokinesis uh, research subjects uh, at the University of Virginia and at the Monroe Institute and at the Ryan Center. Um, and uh, he's a trip. Check out Ed Edwards' stuff. Um, oh, I'm yeah. Going. So I I'm will going. be. be there. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. Well, I'll see you there then. It's yeah. going to be, it'll be. <laughs> It'll be definitely uh, an interesting thing. I don't know. I don't quite know what I'm going to be talking about yet. Um, I think I'm going to have to get up to speed on on Bigfoot. Um, but if I do talk, you know, if my talk will probably be more oriented towards um, Bigfoot as a cultural symbol in ter- and that kind of thing. So, Maybe I'll find a way to tie it into psychic internet. I don't know.
0: Yeah, psychic gorillas. Yeah, I, I, I just keep thinking about um the Saturday night at Paramania at the Big Bigfoot Museum when the guy who owned the museum was talking about how he gets more reports of Bigfoot's floating.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's where I'm at. Like that's where I wanna see I wanted to learn more about that. I mean I'm honestly not um I'll be I'll be speaking at this because uh I got along good with the uh the conference organizer. Mm-hmm. Um and a friend of mine is helping to put the thing on. Uh this, uh, North Georgia artist Kip Ramy, um, and so you know I'm excited to speak at it. It's going to be different because it is, it is in Rabun County, and it definitely will be. As I told one of my friends, it will be a very Southern, uh, you know, very Georgia experience. So, um, but yeah, it'll be uh, it'll be different, and I'm hoping to yeah I'm hoping to focus more on kind of the, the odd the the uh, psychic Bigfoot. Weird Bigfoot, as opposed to the naturalist.
0: The haunting kind. Of. kind of.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I want I want the Bigfoot as a haint more than the the other. So.
0: Yeah, no, so it's cool. That's uh, up in. I see where it's at. Right, almost in Tennessee. All right, great. Yeah, well,
1: it's in. It, well, no, no, it's almost in South Carolina. Yeah, it's up in the northeast. It's in
0: Clayton. Yeah, yeah, I'm. I, I see. Yeah, it's, yes, it's in that little corner.
3: Yeah. yeah.
0: Cool. I'll give you, I'll drive. All
1: right. Yeah.
0: Well, thank great. you again so much. This has been yeah, awesome. Yeah, thank you
1: guys. This was great. And thank you for the good questions that helped me uh, re-explore myself. I appreciate that.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. That's what we're all about. Asking the questions that no one else does. So, uh Mark Stouffer, let me find his bio he made a cool movie oh yeah he made a biopic about bill hicks oh with uh he and russell crowe it was called love laughter and truth
2: oh excellent
0: and he's also the author and curator of the numinous place
1: this is oh, wasn't that the thing movie. where sorry did he do the thing with the, the lucid dreaming tied into the media project where like part of the movie was a lucid dream thing
0: I don't know. Is I, that
1: the numinous place?
0: No, it's a it's a website. It's like um a collection website. A curated website of Fortiana. Oh okay. Oh wait, wait. It's the that. world's first truly multidimensional work of fiction technology and creative merge harmoniously to create a uniquely experimental new medium. Is that it?
1: Yeah. So that is the thing. He works with lucid dreams in terms of uh the you, you work with lucid dreams as you encounter the media. So That'll be cool. I'm gonna to have
0: to check out his site then. So I just had yeah, be cool. it before. Yeah, but he's a real interesting guy and he actually reached out to us. So happy to have him on. Excellent. So so cool. Thank you everyone. Thank you, Nish. Thank you, David. Everyone else. Thank you. Take care. Talk to you later.
2: Have a good night. Bye. Good night, everyone.